Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Looking back, like, naive little Sam, who was, like, just starting out as a reporter, and it was like, gotta prove myself, and, like, gotta gotta get the big story, and, like, you almost don't think. You're just like, God, you gotta go. You gotta get the story. And then I look back, and I'm like, you are so lucky that something didn't happen. So lucky. My name is Luke Tiemann, spelled L-U-C. T-I-E-M-A-N. One of the things that I ended up bringing up after the trial to him was this part that he mentioned about blacking out because that was his whole thing, was like he didn't remember what happened or how things happened or what because he blacked out. I didn't have an alibi. I didn't think I needed one because I didn't know my wife was dead. So I, I tread, I had to tread lightly I guess, because I kind of knew at that point that we might be dealing with something more than just an interview for the 6 o'clock newscast. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. In September of 2016, Valerie Tiemann's parents reported her missing to police. At News Center, Maine, reporter Samantha York heard about the 34-year-old missing woman. I hadn't even been reporting six months at this point. It, it was like four or five months. And so obviously you're looking for bigger stories. Um, so when we caught wind, or I think we might have gotten a press release from state police that there was this missing woman, um, it was something that I instantly wanted to jump into. Um, we had a reporter in Portland that was kind of handling the nuts and bolts of everything, and it was kind of my job to to find the human side, as we call it, or the family members, to kind of get even more information about, you know, who this woman was and who, you know, what happened to her. Valerie Tiemann lived in Fairfield, Maine, with her husband, but her parents in South Carolina were concerned they hadn't heard from her. They were the ones who called police. Her husband, Luke, didn't call police as soon as something happened. It was actually her parents who lived in the Carolinas that finally called police and was like, hey, we we haven't heard from our daughter. We can't get in touch with her. We need your help. Um, And so basically from that point on, as soon as we found out from state police that she was missing, it became like a search, a search effort. The house where Luke and Valerie lived in Fairfield, Maine, was rural an out-of-the-way part of a state where there are many similar towns. So they lived in the Skowhegan-Fairfield area, which is central Maine. It's super uh, it's super rural. Um, used to be like an old mill town. 
So think like really wooded area with, you know, there are some houses here and there, and there's like a, a central kind of hub in the city of Skowhegan. But other than that, it's it's just kind of trees. Valerie was a makeup artist and was well-liked in her personal and professional life. She did stuff with musical theater. She did stuff with models. And I remember talking to one of her, one of her close friends just about who she was. And as he was talking about her, I was like, oh my gosh, this is somebody that I would be friends with. Like, she seems so kind and and smart and really creative. Luke Tiemann told police that the last time he saw his wife was on August 30th when they went to a Walmart together. He went shopping and she stayed in the truck. When he came back out, he said she was gone. He did not report her missing at the time, but police said he was cooperating with the investigation. It was around this time, just as searches were intensifying with no sign of Valerie, that Samantha York got an invitation. It was Luke Tiemann, and he wanted to do an interview about his wife's disappearance. He couldn't figure out where he wanted to meet with us. Um, and I think in the moment, as a reporter, you're still like, okay, we're on deadline. Like, we need to get this guy. We need to talk to him. I need to have sound for the shows. Um, but at the same time, you're like, wow, like, this. maybe this will help police. Like, who knows what could happen from talking to this guy? Um, and so eventually, I think it was, a, we were supposed to meet him first at a Starbucks. And I remember showing up and we went inside and he wasn't there. And I, I texted with my assignment editor. I'm like, hey, we don't see him. He was like, just give it a couple minutes. Like he said, he's going to be there. And then before we knew it, I was sent a different address and I was supposed to meet him. I believe I was supposed to meet him at his house. And I didn't even make it that far. Um, but as I'm driving there, he's on the side of the road with these bright orange gloves. Like they're basically like if you chop up wood, they're like wood gloves. Um, and it looked like he'd been working. Like he was a sweaty mess, basically. And he's walking down the side of the road and um, he flags us down. And so we kind of pull over and he goes... Here, here's a spot right here in the woods. Um, you know, you if you want, you can you can bring your car in here and then no one will see us. And I'm thinking to myself, nope, I'm not doing that. Um, so I actually left my car running because I I guess I just didn't feel really great about it from the start. Luckily I had a, a colleague with me. Got out of the car. We walked down into the woods, so you couldn't even see the road, really, from where we were. I, I tried to keep it in, in as much eyesight as I could, um, but we were tucked back quite a bit. Um, and I just remember him. He was so—what's uh, the word I want? He, he was just, like, overly nice, about everything. And he was like, here, you know, here's a log. You two should just like sit down and, and we can just sit down and talk. And I'm thinking in my head, like, no, I'm not, I'm not sitting down. Like, again, if I need to run, like I want to be able to run because I, I don't know who this guy is and his wife's missing. So who knows? He could be the killer. And so we get the cameras rolling and, and we start going. And um, I just remember the first question out of my mouth was, you know, your wife's missing. How, how are you feeling? And he goes... I've, I've been <laughs> drinking water. And that, for me, was like my heart sank because I was like, this is not a typical response 
that you would get from somebody whose wife has been missing for more than a week. Samantha York then asked about the last time Luke had seen Valerie. He indicated they'd been arguing and she wanted to leave. She wanted to, uh, the night she left, she wanted to, she was looking for her truck keys, which I don't know where the other set is. Um, so she probably still has it. And then she said she was gonna take the truck and leave and never come back when I asked her what she was doing. And uh, I said that, don't do that, I'll go with you. And we, well, we went to Walmart and she wanted some food. And I asked if she would come in with me and she said no. And when I came out, she was gone. So, I just, I just want her back. Her family wants her back. Done everything possible. I don't really remember much after that. Just look, running around looking for. Um, we talked to Walmart, and the police have been very helpful, and they're getting records of. They've got cameras everywhere, so I'm just hoping that they find maybe a direction or a vehicle that she jumped in. And from there it was, you know, okay, I'll keep you posted if, because he was doing his own search. That was the other thing, was like he was telling everybody like, oh yeah, the police are out searching for my wife, but I'm doing my own. And so he was going to keep us us updated on, you know, if he found any any trace of her, basically. I've done my own private searches. Uh, searched with the law enforcement. I'm pretty good at recon, like I said earlier, with tracking. And But other than those tracks, I, I haven't seen her. I went to the local homeless shelter. Um, the owner of uh, Missing Person America. Uh, I've been talking with her and She's gonna get some dogs over here, hopefully, as soon as I can get enough money to <laughs> fund her. But she's been very helpful. And maybe we can go back and find out where she is, if she's homeless, camping, because we camped a lot. And that's where the last places we were staying. So we, we basically try to just talk about or I should say I tried to get out of him, like, you know, who she was and, you know, the last time that they had talked. And I remember him mentioning that there might have been another guy in the picture. And so all of a sudden our focus kind of went from, you know, oh, she's missing to, well, she's a cheater. I thought I knew her until the last couple of weeks. She started saying some things, but I'm not going to say anything bad about her. Um... want her back. And, um, I don't want her to feel scared. I don't want, like, no one's gonna be after her. No one cares what she's done. She's on the news and I'm everywhere. I'm hearing from people from Texas even, and Fox, that 
she's missing. I just want her to come out, not be scared. No one's gonna get her. No one cares what she's done. Your family needs you and come back. Nothing else matters. I just remember leaving the interview thinking like, one, I need to like I need to get this ready for air. Like we've got deadlines to make, but also just like this doesn't feel right. Um, and then before I knew it, I was back, I was getting back to the station, and my managing editor up in Bangor was like, "State police wants your entire interview with him." So they subpoenaed everything that we talked about, um, and something. Within that interview, I have no idea what, but something within it allowed them to get a search warrant um, for his parents' property. That's where Luke and Valerie had been living together on his parents' property in Fairfield. And the next day, Valerie Tiemann's body was found in a shallow grave in the woods on that property, just feet away from where Samantha York had interviewed Luke the day before. Several items were found in that shallow grave alongside Valerie's body. And not only was she buried in a shallow grave, but she was buried with a bag of potato chips and guilty Gucci perfume and a love note that had like this apologetic tone to it, um, which I think kind of tipped off investigators that like this was kind of like a, almost like a shrine situation um, where it's almost like the killer felt bad for what had happened, and this was, like, their way of, of making it right. Two days later, on September 21st, Luke Tiemann was arrested, taken into custody at a motel where he'd stayed the night before. He's now been charged with her murder, and police say the story he told us is very different from the changing stories he told them. Because first it was, she's cheating. Well, you know, they were at the Walmart in Skowhegan, and, you know, they had been... They had been fighting the past few days, and anyway, they went to Walmart together, and he ran inside and, and got a few things, and when he got back out to the truck, she was gone. And again, didn't call police, didn't let anybody know she was missing, but, you know, she must have taken off with the guy that that he had recently found he had been, uh, she had been, you know, talking to. And then it was, oh, well, actually, she, she has an addiction um, to heroin, you know, so she took off because she, she, she needed drugs. And then finally it was, oh no, I actually watched her die, but she overdosed. And then I had to bury her. Or at least that's what he told people. Detectives say Luke changed his story this week, saying Valerie was a drug addict who overdosed and died after he gave her a needle full of heroin. The court documents say Luke claimed he then waited until late at night, took her body outside, and buried her. According to the autopsy, her cause of death was two bullet wounds to the head. She did not die of an overdose. She had gunshot wounds to her neck and head. Um, and I do not believe they found any drugs in her system. Tymon has cooperated with us uh, from the very beginning, so we've had a number of interviews with him. I don't have an explanation as to why he didn't report her missing, that it was her parents that reported her missing. Valerie's body was found Tuesday and identified Wednesday, the same day Luke was arrested. She had friends and 
things that she was a part of. Valerie's friend Emily Fournier spoke with us earlier this week. She says Valerie and Luke had a loving relationship, but details in the affidavit suggest Valerie and Luke's marriage was not a solid one. It says Luke told his friends and family that Valerie didn't love him and that he told police he had relationships with other women. Luke Tiemann entered no plea to the murder charge, but the judge did grant a motion filed by prosecutors requiring Tiemann to undergo a mental evaluation. His family told New Center Maine that Luke suffered from PTSD after serving two tours overseas. Later, in November of that year, he entered a not guilty plea. Tiemann remained behind bars, and more than a year later, in December of 2017, his lawyer made a motion to suppress statements he allegedly made to detectives following his wife's death. The attorney, Stephen Smith, says Luke Tiemann was technically in police custody when he told officers he had seen his wife overdose. An autopsy found that she died of gunshot wounds to the head and neck. Smith tells the Morning Sentinel that his client had not been read his rights. But the trial began as scheduled in April of the following year. He, uh, halfway through, started representing himself. Like, uh, like, all of a sudden, was like, my lawyers aren't representing me the right way. And he ended up taking the stand. Um... But that was kind of like this big moment within the trial was that all of a sudden, yes, he was going to take the stand. And oh, by the way, I don't want my attorneys to help me. Luke Tiemann testified today on his own behalf, but strongly against the advice of his counsel. While on the stand, he was asked point blank three times, did you kill your wife? His answer each time was no. But Luke did admit to lying to investigators. This was several times since Valerie's disappearance in August 2016. Along with confirming he did lie about last seeing his wife in that Walmart parking lot, Tiemann also admitted to lying about watching Valerie overdose and die, and about the note he found buried with Valerie's body. He told the courtroom he only told investigators what he thought they wanted to hear so they would leave his family alone. After Tiemann's testimony, the defense called for the judge to read a statement to the jury made previously by Detective Joshua Burns Birmingham regarding the substance found in Tiemann's vehicle, which was thought to have been blood and was tested for DNA, presumably to reiterate the fact that Luke Tiemann's DNA was tested against the evidence, but never positively found. And so it came out during the trial, too, that he had suffered with PTSD, um, which I think they were trying to kind of allude to that the PTSD could have led to an episode that would make him black out, and then he, he could have killed her in that moment. In the end, prosecutors got what they wanted. Luke Tiemann was found guilty and given 55 years in prison for the murder of his wife, Valerie. He didn't cry that I'm aware of. There was no, and that was kind of like the one thing that was missing with him was like there was no empathy. There was no, I guess that's probably the best word to use. There was there was just no empathy with him, and you could just feel it when he when he spoke. And then for him not to get emotional, it was just kind of bizarre. But as it turned out, during the trial, Tiemann had put in a request for another interview with Samantha York. Of course, she had to wait until the trial ended. But then just a week after the verdict, York met up face-to-face -face with Tiemann, her second interview with the now-convicted murderer. I interviewed him at Two Bridges Jail, which is in Wiscasset. And I had a colleague with me again, luckily, who was there. And I just remember being brought into this really small room, um, almost like a sound booth size room. And that was where I was going to be able to sit down 
and and talk to him. It was basically like our own little closet that we'd be able to meet meet in, and there were windows so people could see us. And um, I just remember them telling me that he wasn't, or I think maybe I had asked, like, is he going to have handcuffs? Is he going to have all of that? And and they were like, no, but but don't worry about it. He's harmless. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he just murdered his wife, so I don't think he's harmless. But so I'm sitting across from this convicted murderer, no handcuffs, no shackles, basically poking the bear about what happened and and tried to get the truth out of him. Um, And it was a really, I'm not going to lie, like I was kind of scared the whole time because luckily I was closest to the door. So like if something were to happen, I could easily exit. But I mean, I don't know what this guy is capable of. And... He's been convicted of murder, so I knew I needed to ask tough questions, but it didn't. It did not make it easy, for sure. It's been a week since the verdict. Yeah. Are you still maintaining that you're innocent? Yes. Want to talk about that? You know, I told them that even if they gave me time served, you know, I wouldn't accept it. That's just the way I feel. Um, I can't see me doing anything like this. I I think at the time, I think he was still trying to point to another person, and he was going to appeal the decision for a a new trial because he felt like certain evidence wasn't able to be put in, and if other people had known that there was another guy in the picture, you know, things would be different. I I don't know if that's, that's true, but... That was his feeling, was that certain certain pieces were not brought up. And if they had been, he wouldn't be behind bars. One of the things was somebody in a police report, I'm not going to say any names, just we didn't even have time to investigate because the prosecution gave it to us literally the week before uh, I started trial. Um, Somebody in a police report at the address of my parents' house um, said that they this happened before this happened, said they were going to kill me and my wife. Watching you the day when the verdict was read, your face didn't really change. You know, what did you, I guess, what did you think? What did, what went through your mind? Um... Been in jail for the last 20 months, and um, it's hard for me to to um, come to the realization of everything. I've had time to, you know, my lawyer said expect this, expect this. So the whole time I've been expecting this, um, and then right before the verdict, you know, he said. Poker face, this is what's going to happen, basically. So I just, a lot of it was going along with, you know, what he mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, um. We talked about everything. I mean, we talked about the first time we met. We talked about the trial. We talked about Valerie. We talked about him being convicted. And like I mentioned before, I mean, my my big thing was 
I guess I don't know if I thought I'd get him to admit something, but I just, I wanted a clearer sense of, of what happened because I, the trial ended and it was like, what actually happened to Valerie? And are we ever going to find out? And I just remember poking the, the, the blacking out piece of if you, if you are admitting to blacking out, isn't there a chance then that you could have hurt your wife? Well, and another thing, I mean, just to touch on kind of what you said in the beginning about, you know, if this, you know, if you just can't recollect what happened, um, I remember hearing, you know, you telling police that everything went black that night. So is it possible that there are just things that you don't remember, that things did go black? I have horrible memory to begin with, and, um... I mean, I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, you know? Um, but could things have gone black that night? I, I don't even... The night that she came back, or I came back? Yeah. Um, I don't remember how everything happened. Um, from there on out... So do you remember burying her? No. You don't remember burying her? No. And why did you testify? I mean, that's unusual. It's not a common thing for people to take the stand and say, hey, I'm up here for this, but I want you to hear my side of the story. Why was that so important for you? I'm confident I didn't murder my wife. And so it's definitely an unusual trial. Um, And, you know, there was a lot that needed explaining. Um, like the Walmart story, the 30th, the overdose story, you know, those things that ultimately looked like condemning to me, you know, there was a non-selfish reason for, for all of that. The interview goes on for almost an hour. Luke talking about his past, his time in the military, his faith, the idea of another suspect still on the loose. But Samantha York returns again to the notion that he blacked out the night he was killed. If you have, it's like if there are memory issues, isn't it possible that you could have done something and just don't remember it? I wouldn't like to. I can't even imagine. Um, I wish. I wish I could. I wish I had more answers. Regardless of what happens to me, I hope that no more people go missing. Um, And, you know, maybe, I don't, I can't imagine, but is there something we can do, like, as community to help prevent these things? And I, I, I feel for her family. I really hope that they get some kind of closure regardless, and that if things change in the future, that there will be no hard feelings. Hey, True Crime Chronicles listeners, Reed Redmond here to join Will and chat just a little bit more about this case. And uh, Will, it's a, a wild and an awful story. And at the end of the day, we're left not knowing what exactly happened. And 
you know, it's frustrating and, and unimaginable for those who knew and, and loved Valerie. But one of the reasons that we do know as much as we do is Samantha York's work covering this story. She mentioned she'd just been on the job for a few months when she first interviewed Luke Tiemann. But that interview, as we heard, ended up being crucial to investigators finding Valerie's body. Did Samantha ever learn what detail from her interview it was that gave police what exactly they needed to get that search warrant? Well, yeah, and she mentions that at the time she didn't really know what it was. And when I asked her about that today, she really still has no idea specifically what it was about that interview that then led them to go get a search warrant and search the parents' property and then find that shallow grave. She mentions that Luke Tiemann did talk to her about the parents' house and the location of it and, and also her whereabouts, obviously, that night and when he claimed he last saw her she has guessed that maybe he contradicted himself on something, and that's what police caught on to. But at this point, it's it's really just guesswork. Another dynamic here is that Luke Tiemann clearly wanted to talk. That first interview came about because he reached out and he wanted to do an interview. And it was the same deal with the interview after his conviction. Does Samantha know why Luke Tiemann reached out to her specifically after the trial to do that interview? Not specifically. That's another question I, I did ask her about. He actually, I believe he handed her a note during the course of that trial and, and you know, mentioned that he would like to to do another interview. And and as we mentioned, she she knew she had to wait until the trial was over. She somewhat jokingly said to me, Well, maybe I just have that kind of face. But she also said, you know, at that point she had already met with him once and she was a member of the media who he recognized and maybe he just thought they had some rapport and she would be a good person to talk to, you know, even after the trial. And as we did hear through that interview, Luke Tiemann is maintaining that he doesn't know what happened, that he did not murder his wife. He did file an appeal. What happened with that? So that appeal went to the main Supreme Court in April of 2019. They denied that appeal. At the time, the appeal had to do with some Facebook messages that were used during the trial that were apparently between his wife, Luke Tiemann's wife, Valerie, and another woman about an affair he was allegedly having. But again, the main Supreme Court denied that appeal. He has since then, in just as recently as last year, tried to appeal again. Uh, his lawyer now saying he didn't have proper representation at the time of the trial, but Tiemann remains behind bars. All right. Thank you, Will. And thanks as well to Samantha York at News Center Maine for sharing this story with us. And thanks for listening to True Crime Chronicles. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.